Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast here on New Books Network. This podcast was, will most certainly be cross-posted to uh, New Books and Buddhist Studies as well, along with other relevant podcasts, because today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Roger Jackson, who is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Religion at Carleton College, on an exciting new publication, hot off the presses, the publisher's uh, Shambhala, and it's called Rebirth, A Guide to Mind, Karma, and Cosmos in the Buddhist World. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Raj. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, You're welcome. And um, typically, uh, I I announce the intro without mentioning uh, Buddhist studies or the other channels. But in being distracted by that, I forgot to mention, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. So we have Raj and Roger. A little R&R time, I suppose. Um, (laughs) I had a a friend who once, uh, uh, he would call me Roger. And whenever he'd email, he'd spell it (laughs) (laughs) R-A-J-E-R. Well, I have friends who would call me Raja. So, you know. Yeah, there you go. So um, tell us about the genesis of the book. How did you come about writing this book? Well, there's a sort of a, in, in terms of the way Indians often talk about lineages or Tibetans talk about lineages, there's sort of a long lineage to it and a short lineage to it. The long lineage goes all the way back to the mid seventies when I first began to study Buddhism seriously in Nepal, attended a month long intensive meditation retreat at Kopan Monastery outside Kathmandu and was told on the very first day, mind is beginningless. This was, this was sort of my first serious introduction to Buddhist cosmology, metaphysics, and so forth. And um, that became for me, in a way, as I deepened my studies of Buddhism, a, a kind of a koan. It was not obviously intuitively the case that mind was beginningless, having grown up as so many of us have in a, in a Western uh, scientifically influenced culture. I uh, you know, figured you got one life and that's it. But this was a very serious assertion to the effect that we had lived before and uh, probably we would live again um, because of the nature of the mind um, and the way mind operates within the cosmos. So uh, it was it was for me, as I said, a, a kind of a koan and a kind of a puzzle. And when I eventually went on to study uh, Buddhism seriously in a graduate program under Geshe Zopa at the University of Wisconsin, I ended up writing my dissertation on what I was assured by all the Tibetans was the single most important argument for rebirth uh, for past and future lives, namely that of Dharmakirti, a 7th century uh, Mahayana Buddhist philosopher. And I wrote a thousand page dissertation uh, with the title, Is Enlightenment Possible?, which was eventually distilled down to a 500 and some page book. And, um, you know, and then I, I kind of, in a way, I kind of let the issue go for a while. Uh, but, uh, but it's always continued to haunt me and to, and to interest me. And recently, within, I don't know, within the last three or four years of, of an editor at Chambala that I know named Casey Kemp was uh, asking for contributions to a volume that Chambala was going to publish uh, on secular Buddhism. It's called, it actually came out last summer. It's called Secularizing Buddhism. And I thought, well, this is an interesting opportunity to write about how modern folk have approached the idea of rebirth, especially within a modern Buddhist context. And so I wrote, wrote up a draft of this, which was about two to three times longer than it 
could or should be for such a volume. And Casey said to me, well, you know, this is wonderful, but we can only really use a part of it. Why don't we carve out the part on modern Buddhist takes on rebirth and the rest? Why don't you turn it into a little book uh, introducing rebirth uh, within the context of Buddhism? And this was about the time the pandemic was starting. So the book became, in effect, my, my early year, first year of the pandemic project. And I dug around in the Pali Canon and on a whole variety of sources and ended up uh, turning in a book that was actually, again, somewhat longer than they had in mind. It was too long to fit into this series they wanted, but they liked it. And so they they published it and it, it came out, oh, I don't know, five weeks ago or or so. So that's the again, that's the that's the near lineage, if you will. <laughs> well, as a, as a as a scholar of Puranas and and many things indic uh, the importance of of lineage, right? <laughs> the importance that's, of Genesis. Yeah. You know, I have to say, just three thousand foot view. Um, on on the one hand, we're cruelly generalizing. On the other hand, um, uh, this isn't without uh, wisdom to say that uh, to. To have a, a, a mindset that views the world in a linear fashion and views life in a linear fashion, sort of the cookie cutter way in which we teach world religions, sort of, you know, this kind of general Abrahamic worldview or worldviews that fit along a linear scheme versus Indic worldviews. Uh, Buddhist, um, Hindu, Jain, etc., which adopt a cyclical uh, universal cycle and a cyclical uh, sense of existence. Is it fair to say in, in your perspective as well that these are radically different backdrops uh, mentally? Um, interesting. I, I think that in many respects, we are looking at radically different uh, backdrops in the sense that uh, rebirth is not, or reincarnation, transmigration, metempsychosis. We, we, let's not quibble, you know, here over what the precisely appropriate term is. But it seems to me that that there is a vast difference in that many, if not all, Indic traditions, you know, for the last uh, you know twenty five hundred years or more, have adopted one or another version of of what's often called the a re, well rebirth karma moksha or liberation cosmology, and uh, Abrahamic traditions typically do not, uh, though there, are, of course, have always been uh, elements within each of, each of the great Abrahamic traditions that, that have uh, been fascinated by the idea, and sometimes you'll find figures who propound it, but by and large, there's a, there's a distinct difference there. I think where I would maybe not agree entirely. I, I do agree that there is something like a cyclical notion, uh, cosmologically and temporally speaking in Indic religions. Um, however, when I, you know, when I was told at Copan Monastery that mind is beginningless, the, the framework within which that was imagined was one in which, you know, this life was preceded by a previous life with, quote, the same mind. That's itself a tricky issue when we come to Buddhism. But, you know, and that was preceded by another life and so forth. So in a way, there is a, I think there is within the notion of cosmic and historical cycles that do repeat individuals, in quotes, uh, mind streams, if you will, are 
on a line. <laughs> They're on a sequence uh, of, of mindstream, mindstream, mindstream that goes back beginninglessly. And of course, that's another point of significant difference between many Indic traditions and most Abrahamic traditions, the notion of, of a single genesis that is at least the normative view in, in Abrahamic traditions is, is not necessarily the normative view. In fact, it, it is not overall the view in many Indic traditions. A great place maybe to continue is with your very first chapter, which will be fascinating to a number of people. You talk about rebirth in world cultures. Say a bit more about that. Yeah, well, it's it's really the, the first chapter really tries to set the the uh, the larger the the Indic uh, and specifically Buddhist context within uh, studies that have been done, and th these are not original to me necessarily. I, I confess that I've learned much of of what I know about uh, rebirth and reincarnation world cultures from a marvelous book by the anthropologist Gananat Obeyasekera called Imagining Karma, uh, which which surveys the the field, the anthropological field here and and the textual field as well, masterfully. Um, anyway, uh, Obeyasekera, he really ought to get much of the credit for this, um, makes distinctions um, uh, about different sorts of, re of cosmologies that involve rebirth. And he talks about, quote, small-scale societies in which there are notions of rebirth, um, you know, Inuit societies, uh, Trobriand Islanders, uh, certain uh, tribes in Africa and so forth, uh, just as examples uh, that have adopted various ideas of rebirth. And then he also talks about larger scale societies in which ideas of rebirth or reincarnation have been adopted. Uh, the most notable from his perspective being especially the Greek and the Indic. Um, and within the Greek context, we have uh, figures like Pythagoras and Plato, who each in their own way seems to have adopted a, a reasonably sophisticated notion of, of rebirth. And there, there, there's a whole range of different ways of thinking about rebirth. For one thing, there's the basic question, is rebirth a good thing or a bad thing? In, in many of the preliterate societies that Obeyasekera uh, examined, and again, he was basing himself on field work that had been done by other people. This is how scholarship works. Um, he, uh, he noted that for the most part, to be reborn was considered to be a good thing in, in most of these cultures, and that rebirth generally happened within the same clan or family unit that one had lived in in a previous life. So it was, it was a mode of continuity within the notion of, of family and clan. Um, and there were, you know, sometimes there were, you could only be, re, if you were human, you could only be reborn as human. In some groups, there was cross species reincarnation where you could be reborn as an animal or, or vice versa. Um, but in the, in the Greek and, and, and then also, of course, the Indic societies, there, there came about a, a more sort of ethically connected notion of rebirth. This doesn't mean that, of course, that there weren't notions of ethics in these uh, smaller scale societies, only that the linkage between what we do in this life and our rebirth was not necessarily made in a concrete and, and, and uh, firm manner. Whereas when you, get, <clears throat> when you get into the Greek context, you're beginning to see that. And for Obeyaseko's purposes, it's really in the Indic setting, uh, both Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, 
various other groups as well that you could you could name that there there comes to be this strong uh, link between actions in this life and rebirth in some particular form or circumstances in a future life. And this is this is what he calls what what Obayasekara calls a karmic eschatology. So a notion of what happens to us after death that is based on the quality of our actions, our karma, of course. Certainly, um, the notion, the principle that's positive, uh, karma is indispensable um, to to innovations or innovations on rebirth. Um, You have a a number of fascinating chapters. Uh, Perhaps we can, um, you can give an overview at some point, but um, let's turn to chapter 10, where you, the the title says it all, is rebirth real? Indian Buddhist arguments, you know, what do you, what do you you share in that chapter? Well, uh, here I try to uh, survey a range of different types of arguments that were used by Buddhists to presumably persuade some kind of audience. <laughs> you know, we're talking about oral traditions, we're talking about written traditions, we're talking about scripture, we're talking about commentary and shastra uh, or treatises. So th- there's, you know, if you survey the field, and of course, I, I haven't read everything that there is out there, but but it struck me that there is, is a, a fairly clear uh, range of different types of arguments that were used, you know, over the course of a thousand, fifteen hundred years in India by Buddhists to make a case for rebirth. And these range from, I would say, some of the earliest arguments that are what I would call experiential arguments. Uh, and, and I think that actually some of the prime examples of this now let's, let's bracket for a moment, the question of how much of what is attributed to the Buddha in something like the Pali Canon or the other early scriptures quote, really was taught by the Buddha. This is, these are complex textual matters, but this is a fairly early body of literature. We've got some, there's some consistency among different versions of it. And it's quite clear to me anyway, that, that the Buddha, uh, a considered rebirth to be a a central part of his cosmology, as I think many people in the Indic world of the fifth, fourth centuries BCE probably did. And that when we read, there's some very basic and important claims that are made in statements attributed to the Buddha, ranging from his uh, sort of famous song of victory uh, on the night of his enlightenment that's enshrined in the 11th chapter of the Dhammapada, where he talks about having sought, you know, for many years for the, the builder of this house and, you know, finally having located the builder of this house, the house being a metaphor for this particular body. Um, and, you know, f- realizing now that he shattered the ridge pole and, and basically destroyed it and that it won't be built again. There will be no further birth. And that the, the Dhammapada makes that fairly clear down to kind of classic, but still quite early uh, claims uh, or descriptions given, supposedly given by the Buddha himself of the night of his enlightenment, where uh, it, as is often said, there were there were during the three watches of the night, three different sorts of knowledge that arose for him. And in the very first watch of the night, this is after he had defeated the onslaught of Mara um, and sat down, uh, you know, under the Bodhi tree to meditate, he was able to survey all his previous lives. Uh, well, there's no, of course, actually, there's no beginning to his previous lives, but he could 
have gone on endlessly, you know, saying in, I was born in such and such a place and this was my action and, you know, this was my state of mind and so forth. And so this, this uh, power of retrocognition, if you will, the memory of past lives is, is built into uh, classic notions of what the Buddha actually attained on the night of his awakening. And incidentally, the second watch, in the second watch of the night, he gains basically what we would call clairvoyance, the divine eye that is able to look about him in the present and see how it is the beings are acting, how it is they are being born into other lives on the basis of their actions. And then it's in the third watch of the night, he penetrates into the nature of existence and sees that he is completely liberated. So, so these are just a couple of examples of experiential arguments. And there's many others that could be cited where the Buddha will talk to people about how, well, these people who live somewhere along the Ganges say, you know, we've, we've had a lot of relatives die and we wonder where they've gone. And the Buddha will say, well, I can see that, you know, this, this many of them ended up in this particular heaven and so forth and so on. So, so with the note, basically the notion that it is possible through contemplative experience, particularly through the powers of a highly concentrated mind, uh, having achieved the what Buddhists call the fourth jhana or absorption, one is able to to gain these powers. So that's the experiential argument is an important one. There are analogical arguments uh, where. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, for instance, in the famous questions of King Melinda, the Melinda Panya, uh, there are uh, there are ways of talking about. They'll use analogies like that of a, a, a mango seed that plants a mango tree, from you know which sprouts and then grows up into into a great spreading mango, and you know itself drops seeds, which then you know, go into the ground and themselves sprout trees. And this, you know, this becomes a kind of analogy for how, in effect, through natural processes, we could understand how a process like rebirth might happen, right? So um, there are what we might call uh, pragmatic arguments. There, there's actually fairly early on, uh, again, in, in this is found in, in the Pali Canon, among, among other collections, a, a, an early version of something like Pascal's Wager, uh, in which uh, the Buddha makes a, a pragmatic case, basically saying, well, if you're not sure um, about karma and rebirth, um, at the very least, why don't you act as if it's the case? And if it turns out that it's, it's the case, um, you will have lived well in this life because you understand the connection between karma and rebirth. Um, and you'll you'll get a good rebirth. And if and if it turns out not to be the case, well, you still will have lived a good life. You'll be praised by people and so forth. Whereas if you act as if it's not the case, um, and you know live a live a life of of non-virtue, uh, then you're going to be derided by people in this life. And if there is a if there is in fact the next life, you're in trouble. So that's a kind of a pragmatic argument. There are. Uh, arguments that I would call something like moral arguments, um, in which it's argued that only the Buddhist way of reckoning karma, rebirth, and so forth can fully account for some kind of cosmic justice, uh, that especially theistic views uh, with a notion of a kind of ar arbitrary god or deity figure 
that controls things makes makes the whole idea of moral responsibility kind of pointless. Um, so, you know, arguments that, of course, we see a lot in 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 the Western philosophical and theological tradition. Um, the last one I'll mention, I mean, there are others, but the, the last one I'll mention is is some kind of an attempt at a rational argument, um, an argument that, and, and the most famous of these is the one that I mentioned at the outset, that by Dharmakirti, framed probably in the seventh century of the Common Era, in which in a text, uh, the Pramanavartika, called, which is often translated as exposition of valid cognition, something like that, um, he argue, he tries to he he basically sets out in one of the chapters of that what I would call a, a a kind of classic Buddhist philosophy of religion. He argues uh, that the Buddha he starts out by arguing that the Buddha is a reliable source of knowledge for those who are intent on spiritual freedom, and he then sets out to prove that this is the case. Uh, by, for instance, uh, is taking each of the famous four noble truths, suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path to the cessation of suffering, and trying to show rationally how each of these is true. He also tries to show, uh, and this is, this is where the, the question of rebirth comes in, that it is possible that the Buddha um, actually is the instantiation or the exemplar or somebody uh, or someone who has attained all possible good qualities. And, and he takes as an example, infinite compassion. And he recognizes that if, if you're going to argue that the Buddha is infinitely compassionate, and that's, <laughs> that's standard, that's a standard notion from the very beginning of what a Buddha is. Of course, he's infinitely wise, infinitely skillful, blah, blah, blah. But 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 here he takes compassion. He says compassion is the proof, and he recognizes immediately that pretty much nobody can achieve all positive qualities. Can't nobody can become completely compassionate if there's only one life. So he recognizes that if he's going to prove the Buddha's infinite compassion, he has to prove more broadly that. Uh, rebirth is possible. And to prove that rebirth is possible, he recognizes that he has to take on the whole mind-body problem. And he therefore sets out a, a very complex and sophisticated both refutation of contemporaneous materialist views, which would reduce, reduce mind simply to a, a, a function of the body, an epiphenomenon of the body. And he also establishes as carefully as he can uh, a, a way of, of explaining how it is that mind can be related to body, which it is, and yet separable from body at the time of death, which it is. It's a, it basically an interactionist dualism in, in modern epistemological or philosophy of mind terms. And so the, these are these are sort of the uh, some examples of the of the kind of arguments that that Indian Buddhists used. So one of the core tenets of Buddhism um, is this idea of anatman, right? And does this, in your view, poses a tension to the idea of rebirth, or how have folks responded to this potential? tension? I mean, when I teach Buddhism, um, it's sort of either in a continuing studies or intro. Um, uh, intro world religion course. Um, <laughs> I actually use a modern analogy, the analogy of the iPhone. 
sense of when your iPhone, when you need a new iPhone, magically you go to the Apple store and all of the data is transferred. It might even be a similar looking hardware and you leave and you open your, your iPhone and your music's the same, you know, your, your, your contacts are the same, your text messages are the same because they were saved in the cloud and you're functioning with this, the, the same conditioning, but really was there an essence of an iPhone that, that transfers from phone to phone. And so the, the idea, uh, many of the audience will know this, but one of the core differences between classical Hindu darshan as a philosophical schools and, 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 and Buddhism is uh, that Hinduism posits uh, an Atman, a supreme self, uh, a spiritual self, if you will, that, that, that transfers from life to life to which karma clings. And Buddhism says, no, there is no soul. There is no Atman. There's no permanent essence from life to life. And so, Say a little bit about this conundrum and, 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 and maybe how others have approached this. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I want to say I love your analogy with the iPhone. That's, uh, I, I think that's brilliant. Um, uh, coming from you, that's high praise, uh, oh, given no, your field of expertise. So, so I'm glad <laughs> it resonates. Yeah, no, it, it very much does. I mean, there are other examples that people have used. You know, people have used the example of a film, right? Which, if you, if you know what a, what a film actually is, it's, it's, it's the passage. Uh, at 24 frames a second of uh, still images, you know, through a, a projector, which gives the illusion of continuity, but there is actually no continuity. Uh, people have used the analogy of a river, which has a certain identity, uh, a certain continuity, and yet is itself uh, constantly in a, in a process of change. And the, the, the tradition itself um, utilized uh, analogies again as as one way of coming at this, um, with with again the questions of King Melinda, the Melinda Punya being a, a great source for this, and the example that's used in in the questions of King Melinda is of a uh, again it's it's a it's a kind of a, it's it's a way of explaining how how it could be the case that there is no quote self no intrinsic identity and yet there is this kind of continuity. And it talks about, for instance, uh, the way in which a, at, at sundown, a lamp or a, or a torch may be lit. And that over the course of the night, that, you know, that torch then lights another torch, which lights another torch. And then, a, you know, there's a final torch just before dawn. And the question is, well, is, is the torch that's burning at dawn the same as the one that was lit at sundown? Or is it different? You can't really say that it's one or the other. Uh, anyway, th th this is a this is an analogical approach to this. Um, and, and I should step back and, and say, you know, commenting, and I think you summarized the, the the fundamental difference between classical Hindu views. Obviously, there's a great variety of different views that go under the umbrella of Hinduism. But if we take if we take the kind of classic traditions, Samkhya and Vaisheshika and, and uh, Vedanta and so forth, um, there's a, you know, there's a certain similarity there in the uh, supposition that there is some kind of an unchanging spiritual, for want of a better term, principle. Uh, that goes from life to life, and the Buddhists do reject this, um, and yet they maintain rebirth. Um, and and of course, they they the Buddhists were attacked <laughs> from every direction for their claim that there was no continuing self, because the argument was made by Hindus and Jains and others. Well, 
you know, if if the world is 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 as radically impermanent as you say it is, and the person is as radically impermanent as you say it is, then there is, you know, there's no there's not even continuity from one moment to the next, one moment of Raj or one moment of Roger to the next, and and therefore notions like uh, moral responsibility, memory, personal identity, let alone rebirth through some kind of karmic processes is, is, is just a joke. It's not, it's not possible. And so Buddhists, as, as, as we would say nowadays, had a lot of explaining to do. And the analogical example I just gave from the Melinda Pania is one approach. I think that the, the more common approach, uh, I mean, apart from simply arguing back and forth with the Hindus or the Jains as to whether there was any permanent principle anywhere in the cosmos was to, was in the, the whole tradition of Buddhist discourse known as the Abhidharma. Uh, this is one of the three, quote, baskets or collections of early Buddhist scriptures. And it's, the, it's probably the latest to develop, but it's still a tradition that began well before the uh, turn of the first millennium uh, in the BCE period. And, and, and what Abhidharma is, um, and a lot of people find Abhidharma really tough sledding because it is, it's, it's highly systematic metaphysics and psychology. And w- the way I think about Abhidharma is that it really is, a, is an incredibly uh, complex attempt to explain how the world can work and function as it does without recourse to some kind of continuing metaphysical principles or, or any kind of metaphysical substance. So Abhidharma is involved a great deal in talking about how different dharmas, uh, events, or uh, the kind of uh, foundational elements of reality, how they interact, intersect, um, and how the world works through this complex dependent arising, as Buddhists would say, of various kinds of dharma. So, um, you know, so I think there's, you know, there's sort of three responses that the Buddhists had. One was to provide analogies that at least make um, rebirth plausible, even though there is no self, uh, to argue, just sort of keep arguing with Hindus and Jains and, and showing how their own philosophies that's, that uphold such a self are are flawed and to provide this you know it's almost like systems philosophy or or something like that um uh, attempting or or modern physics in a way an attempt to to give this elegant uh, but very complex description of how things work without having to posit some continuing self fascinating um the book is written in a very accessible manner. It's obvious that the person writing it is either an innate teacher or storyteller, because let me give you a sense of what the, the table of contents is. You know, um, the, the, the chapters are called this. Uh, chapter one, rebirth in world cultures. Okay, sensible place to start. And then chapter two, pre-Buddhist Indian rebirth theories. Then the Buddha himself on rebirth. We'll return to that in a moment. Um, and then very logically organized, where rebirth happens. Uh, a tour of a Buddhist cosmos, how rebirth happens, you know, the 12 links, uh, why rebirth happens, mysteries of, of, of karma, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, I want you to say a little bit about what the Buddha says uh, about rebirth, and then uh, you can segue directly into that, uh, into an answer to the following. Uh, 
what do you most hope folks would take away from this book? What is the core message, theme, ethos, mission, work that the book ideally will accomplish? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the, I'll try to, I'll give a general answer to the last part of your question first. And then, because I think I can go back into the Buddha then, and, and uh, that will segue uh, naturally from what I'm about to say, which is, I, I think that the main thing I, I am trying to do in this book is A, to write reasonably accessibly, and I appreciate your saying that you, you think that I succeed in that, um, and to give an overview of uh, rebirth, especially in Buddhist cultures, especially in Indic Buddhist culture, but I, I do deal with uh, cultures outside of India as well, and to to demonstrate the seriousness with which Buddhists in in the pre-modern era took the idea of rebirth, um, and this this includes um, not just uh, traditions in which it it seems to be front and center, um, as with the as in the Pali Canon and other early collections, uh, but also in the Mahayana, uh, which of course is a very important uh, aspect of, of Indic Buddhism and then a tremendously influential style of Buddhism outside of India in East Asia and Inner Asia. And, and in, the, in the Mahayana, there's, a, uh, there's often discourse. And I think you know when people encounter Buddhism, it's often these days through the Mahayana, and people are used to reading the Heart Sutra, the paradoxes in the perfection of wisdom literature, uh, you know, perhaps the, the rigorous arguments of Nagarjuna. And, and, and I, I mean, to be honest, I was first attracted to Buddhism through paradox, uh, through through the through Zen and through uh, the through the, the the Heart Sutra and texts like that, which seem to negate the whole cosmology, the whole notion of karma, you can read, you know, you can find that woven all throughout early Mahayana literature um, and, and, you know, going forward. And so part of, part of what I also, part of my attempt to show that Buddhists really took this idea, idea seriously is to contextualize how Mahayanists talked about rebirth and show that their apparent negations of it are only negations that have to do with trying to spur us into seeing more deeply the way things actually exist. And that it doesn't, that, that say a negation of rebirth in something like the Heart Sutra, which does implicitly negate it, um, doesn't, should not be taken at face value because uh, Mahayana Buddhists in particular articulate a notion of two levels of truth um, in which, um, the ultimate truth is the emptiness or the lack of self in anything, anywhere, uh, any entity, any concept. Um, and yet the conventional world operates as it does. And it was actually presumed by the authors of Mahayana sutras and Shastras and other texts that rebirth was the case, karma was the case, and that in effect, the early Buddhist cosmology was upheld um, and, and uh, both assumed and upheld. Um, but to, 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 to go back to the Buddha, because all this does beg the question, which some people have raised, <clears throat> as to whether the Buddha really took rebirth seriously. Stephen Batchelor, who is a, a, a very interesting thinker and 
uh, a fine scholar of Tibetan Buddhism, and in more recent years has turned his attention to the early traditions of Buddhism, uh, has argued uh, in, in uh, uh, a fairly recent book that, that the Buddha didn't really take the idea of rebirth all that seriously. He was simply adopting the, the, the kind of lingo of his times. It was in the water, if you will, or in the air. And so just as a sop to convention, he used the language of, of, of karma in its various details. He used the language of rebirth. But, the, but the, what he was really interested in was a you know, kind of an ethical, psychological approach to life. Um, and uh, there, there have been others who have argued that um, the Buddha was not necessarily all that interested in rebirth on the basis of a kind of text stratification process whereby it is presumed that the so-called chapter on the eights, the Atakavaga of the Sutta Nipata, which is part of the Pali Canon, but from a literary standpoint, seems fairly early, um, that, that in the Atakavaga, in the various sutras that make up this chapter of the Sutta Nipata, there really is um, not that much attention paid to rebirth. And, you know, that's, that's a point that can be granted. Uh, but it, it, once again, as, as I guess I see it with the Mahayana literature, I, I, I think it's lurking there in the background. The Buddha says, oh, don't get attached to future lives. He doesn't say there aren't future lives. And of course, the Buddha famously taught in various ways for various people at various times. That's, uh, um, that's a really important point uh, for anybody who has been um, involved in traditional transmission of Indic knowledge, uh, Buddhist, uh, Hindu, Jain, what have you. Whether it's online, whether it's in person, whether you're an initiate, whether you're just attending a satsang, whatever it is. Uh, one of my off-color but apt metaphors at the School of Indian Wisdom that I run is uh, advice is like underwear. It's not one size fits all. So just because you hear someone say something to one student doesn't mean, oh, it can be generalized. So a couple of things that come to mind just, just randomly. I mean, yeah, I'm, not yeah, yeah. A, I'm not a Buddha, Buddha study scholar, obviously, but I have a little bit of common sense from, that, from, from, from time to time. Um, is If the Buddha were so inclined to just soak up his milieu um, and, and just roll with it, he certainly would have stuck his neck out with, with this... Uh, problematic and difficult to defend position of an Atman. He would have, okay, there is an Atman as well, right? Like, why would he stick his neck out on this point, but then go along? I mean, it doesn't ring true to me. And, and secondly, the arguments, uh, um, the refutations of the significance of rebirth, uh, the, the methodology and the, the assumptions are that we can tell who the Buddha was and what he, what he taught by the text that we have. A which text survived, be anybody who's worth their salt in the life of practice of Indic wisdom traditions understands the text is a prop. The text is nothing more than a prop. And, and um, um, uh, the vast majority of esoterica, particularly pertaining to that person's destiny or their past lives, is not in the public space and it's not written down. And so there are a couple of assumptions there, um, just random things that occur to me. You know, I have no vested... I have no dog in the fight, right? I have no vested interest as to whether the, the historical Buddha believed in, in, in rebirth or not. But suffice it to say, it seems to me that, that that is 
one of the key takeaways that you hope readers would have of your book. The, 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 the significance, the gravitas, the indispensability of rebirth to Buddhism. Would you agree? Yes, I would. I would. Um, and that, of course, begs, I don't, I, we may, I don't know whether you plan to segue over to modern views uh, at some point, but the, the whole question of the indispensability of, of rebirth to Buddhism and, and traditional Buddhist cosmology to Buddhism in the modern era is, of course, a much fraught subject. Um, but I, but certainly, uh, in, in terms, since most of the book, I mean, 13 of the 15 chapters really are looking at traditional Buddhism, um, mostly in India, uh, but also then in the Theravada world, the East Asian world and the Tibeto Mongolian world. And yeah, certainly if, if there's a key takeaway, it's this stuff mattered, um, within, you know, there, there are all sorts of interesting exceptions, all sorts of interesting problems, but you know, the, the, yes, the key takeaway is that, uh, for traditional Buddhists, this mattered. It strikes me that the takeaway, if I'm reading it correctly, is even a little further than that. Okay. Uh, it strikes me that, that certainly you're, you're documenting the extent, the extent to which rebirth was crucial for traditional Buddhists, but it, uh, and please, by all means, correct me if I'm wrong. The last thing I want to do is put words in your mouth. It seems to me that, uh, your book is showing that rebirth is indispensable to the very ideology or philosophy of Buddhism, whether one is a traditional Buddhist or not. Yes, with a qualification. <laughs> please, um, please share. Um, and again, this really does push us, I think, into contemporary debates about this, to which I devote, uh, especially the last chapter, but really the last two chapters. Well, well, please, by all means, people will be interested in that. And yeah. why don't you share a bit about what you come up with? Right. I mean, in, in sort of surveying, you know, obviously there's, there's way more out there than I could possibly cover or, or even read. Uh, but, but it, in the course of examining the way modern Buddhists have thought about rebirth, particularly in the West, but not only in the West, because of course, modernity is a complex phenomenon in and of itself. And it is part of Asian culture in the last several centuries as well. Anyway, in, in surveying that, I, I really came up with a, a rough and ready spectrum of different responses that Buddhists have given in the modern world to the rebirth cause, the karma rebirth cosmology, if you will. Um, and these range from what I call more or less literalist, um, in which it's assumed that the way things are described in the traditional text is the way things are. And uh, that's that, um, to what I call a neo-traditionalist view, which accepts in, in its broad outlines the truth of rebirth and the operations of karma, but seeks to articulate it or understand it through more modern ways of talking about things, through scientific analogies or, um, or other, uh, other approaches like that to what I call, a, and, and this can include, for instance, sort of relitigating Dharmakirti's famous arguments and trying to uh, either update them or tweak them so that they, <clears throat> they somehow can be uh, aligned with neuroscience um, 
to what I call a, the so the the sort of third point on this spectrum. I suppose we're moving from right to left, if you will, um, assuming that right somehow stands for conservative and traditionalist. I mean, that's a cliche, but that's how I think of it. Uh, sort of just left of center then is is the modernist view, which is uh, finds the traditional descriptions of the traditional cosmology either unpersuasive or at the very least um, not fully demonstrated or demonstrable and therefore tries to understand it not so much in literal terms or as as you know saying well we actually do go to some other realm after we die but rather as uh think, thinking of it symbolically or psychologically or existentially right um and uh, often such a stance is is roughly agnostic about whether rebirth is really the case, but uh, in any case is not committed uh, to or completely convinced of the reality of rebirth. And then the, the, the sort of farthest left view is, is what I call secularism, which basically says that, that these are ideas that were fine for traditional Buddhists, but we as modern people don't really need that. We have to completely reconceive Buddhism by our own lights. And uh, so I mean, this is this is a slightly elaborate way of of answering the or, or responding to the comment you made because I, I think I do believe <clears throat> I, I would I, I will say personally that I locate myself more or less within the Buddhist modernist camp. That is, I'm not fully persuaded by Dharmakirti's arguments or the other sorts of arguments that have been made. But I also do because I believe that. Um, notions of karma, rebirth, other realms, and so forth are, they're, they're essential to Buddhism in the, in the sense that they are part of the discourse and the mythology and the imagination, the imaginary of Buddhism. And so I don't think they should be tossed out uh, the way I think a secularist would want to toss them out. I think that they, they have to be perhaps real, you know, and I can only speak personally here. I'm not prescribing this for everybody by any means. There's a lot of options out there. Um, but, but for me personally, it's, it's a matter of sort of uh, acting, living, thinking as if they were the case. <laughs> uh, maybe it goes back to those pragmatic arguments I mentioned earlier as part of the uh, equipment of early Buddhist uh, attempts to show that rebirth was the case. Uh, so, so in that sense, I, I mean, so I, I, it's not, I guess I don't think that the reality of rebirth in a literal sense is a requirement for being Buddhist in the modern world. But I, it does strike me that taking these ideas seriously and working with them as best we honestly can from our cultural, intellectual, and other standpoints, that that's, in that sense, it's, uh, it's necessary. Yes, and just to parse out a little bit, uh, uh, we're not um, aiming to ascertain or pronounce judgment on the ontological reality of rebirth. It's more along the lines of, well, certainly rebirth is a crucial component of um, uh, Buddhist systems of thought and practice. 
and the question of uh, irrespective of their ontological reality um yeah is it truly conceivable as buddhism without rebirth um is one able to dispense with rebirth when when adopting or contemplating buddhism i mean these are important questions and i'm with you i I certainly um respect that um, there are different paths and uh, for different needs and different individuals with where where they are at um uh, certainly the the attempt to quote-unquote sanitize buddhism of what may be an affront to the to the uh, to the to the modern mind, it's it's a conceit, it's a misguided conceit that that the ancients weren't um, logical, or there weren't materialists among. It's 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 an absolute conceit that uh, uh, the power of story and symbol and art is something pre-modern or pre-literate, right? And so I think I think that other traditions are just much more comfortable with code switching than yeah. we are in the modern West. Um, I think that's enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah, enough, enough for me. Um, oh, uh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on about the book before we end for today? Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think uh, you know every conversation is is different, and I this has been a fascinating foray into into various points that strike me as quite important in the book. So I, I don't have any. I don't. I have no particular agenda or uh, I, silence. Huge thing that we missed, I don't think. Excellent. Now, one very quick question before we close. Um, are you continuing research in this area? Is there something else next for you, research-wise? Um, I am writing a paper uh, on that, that kind of uh, revisits Dharmakirti's argument um, through the lens of a particular Tibetan commentary, and then also through the lens of thinking about modern attempts to deal with Dharmakirti's argument. But my main research actually now is in a, is in a very different area. I'm writing a book also for Shambhala on the great uh, uh, medieval, if you will, um, Indian Buddhist poet, Saint Saraha, um, who is, uh, who's famous, uh, Doha, Doha Kosha Giti uh, songs, treasury, Doha treasury songs is um, a kind of seminal work for both Indian and then especially uh, Tibetan tantric Buddhist traditions, especially surrounding this notion called the Great Seal, Mahamudra. And I'm, I'm well into that project and hope to finish that uh, later this year and waiting in the wings uh, <laughs> Shifting again, I have a, a book that I'm really mostly researching now on Buddhism and the beats. Um, mm. The one that's um, the one that you're you're near completion. You'll certainly have to uh, email me when that one's out because I'll, we'd certainly cover it again. You're welcome back on the podcast. Really, um, the podcast used to be called New Books in Hindu Studies. And I facilitated and suggested we rebranded about a year to go to new books in Indian religions, because what about Sikhism? What about Jainism? What about Buddhism in India? What about, um, you know, uh, uh, Christianity in India? And so, so I'd love to cover that podcast as well. Um, uh, Thank you for appearing today. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to meet you and to talk to you. For those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Roger Jackson on his brand new Shambhala publication, Rebirth, A Guide to Mind, Karma, 
and cosmos in the Buddhist world. Until next time, um, keep listening, uh, keep reading, stay safe, and keep contemplating um, the possibility that you've been here many times before. You may well be here many times in future. Take care.